trying to figure out what is the gospel? What is this good news? And, you know, in the first gospel sermon we see in the scriptures, the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, he gives a sermon, he breaks down everything that Jesus did, and he, and he summarizes it with a statement. He says, it would be right for you to believe that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. Now, basically summing up the gospels is, is in this little term here. If you notice in these titles, the first title of Jesus, of course, is his name. His name itself means that God is salvation. And so, each time that we refer to him as Jesus, it's this, this symbolic gesture of seeing him as Savior. Now, the second title that we see that Jesus gets, of course, is that of Messiah. We see that he's the one who throughout all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture was prophesied to come and to make things right for Israel. It's this idea that, that basically for Israel, he was going to create a new city. He was going to make things right. And inside the walls of his city... Everything that should be, would be. There would be peace and justice and hope and love. And my voice is a bit loud. Can you bring me down just a bit, Kristen? I hate hearing my voice. Who likes to hear your own voice? Anybody? If you notice when that video played, I had to walk out. I was like, I'm not listening to myself at all. It completely throws me off. It's so weird, isn't it? Anybody else or am I the only one? You like to hear your own voice. Who wants to admit that? <laughs> I love the sound of my voice. It's tremendous. Okay, anyway. Beyond that. Here we go. So he's Messiah. Now, Messiah is this word, and every time that we see the word Christ, it's the same word. It's the Greek word for Messiah. He's understanding that Jesus was the chosen one. He's the sealed one. He's the one that God had promised to Israel to come back and to restore everything that was lost. He's going to build the city, and inside the walls of the city, everything is perfect and whole. There's peace and joy and love and wholeness and peace. And I, and I said those both twice. This is our second service. This is going to be fun. Here we go. But in this we see that he has his third title, and it's of Lord. And this title uh, means that he has complete ownership. And so when you add the title of Lord to it, it's that God wasn't just coming to create this new city and to restore everything and to make things perfect for Israel. He was coming to not just to set up a city, but a kingdom. And to not just restore Jerusalem and the Jews, but to restore the entire earth and everyone in it. Because he's not just the king of the Jews anymore. Now he's taking claim to the entire world and to all of us. Is that good news? Hopefully. Okay, so as we go into this, if it's your first time, what we do here, my heart is to really get everyone to see these things clearly. So what I'm going to say is, I'll say, do you see it? And then I'd like you to say back to me, see it. So let's try it. Do you see it? And again, it's important because the way that I am, if I don't think that we're getting a point, I'm going to sit there for 20 minutes and we're all going to be late to go get our eggs and no one wants that. Agreed? See it, right? Yeah. Amen. I see it. Okay. Here we go. Now, so on Friday, we celebrated and mourned the fact that we have this God who was willing to, to take upon himself all of the darkness and sin and death and pain and loss. We, on Good Friday, we see Jesus as Messiah, the one who's promised to make everything right again. And we see him on the cross and in he is, in essence, he is consuming. He is taking all of the darkness, the bitterness, the evil, everything that is wrong in this world is just being consumed by him. It's almost like it's filling him. And then we see that he dies. Now, the reason that today is special, the resurrection, uh, Easter Sunday, is because when Jesus came, he always had this message of the kingdom of God. He would come in and he, he would say a parable or, or something that was really kind of messing with people. And he would say the kingdom of heaven was, is near. And like, what he meant by that 
was that God himself and God's forces, the army of God, the, the reality of God was going to invade this world. And he would say that, but then he would do something. He would prove it. So he would say the kingdom of heaven is near, and then he would find someone or something, a place where Satan and his armies, if you were, the forces of evil were oppressing. And so he would find someone, he said, the kingdom of heaven is near. God is coming to make everything right, and here's proof. You who cannot see, see. You who cannot hear, hear. You who is poor, here's money. You who, who needs a home, here's a home. You who is dead, come back to life. And it was a picture not just of this God who's going to take all the evil into himself, but of someone who wasn't just going to take the, the blows and punches from our enemy, but someone who's going to conquer him altogether. So every time you see Jesus doing these signs and wonders, he's doing it because he loves the person, but he's also making a statement. He is proving that there is not just a God who loves them, but a God who is powerful. Do you see it? So we don't just have a God of love and compassion and goodness. We have a God of might and of power and ultimate victory. So here on, on Easter Sunday with the resurrection, we get to kind of lean into this reality of this God who is conquering everything. And the ultimate picture of his conquering the enemies of Satan is death itself. It's almost like a picture of uh, David and Goliath. Back in these times, sometimes when armies and empires and kingdoms would, would fight, what they would do is they would send out a champion. And so in the Old Testament, with the story of David, where the, this, this, this champion of Goliath comes out, and of course the, you know, the, the Jews have to figure out, who are we going to send? So they send David. And you see these two champions who are fighting. Each one is there to represent their kingdom. But what we see here at the cross is that at the cross, God has made a statement. My armies and my kingdom are coming to conquer this world again, to take back what's mine. And Satan is coming to fight this. At the cross, we see the, the conflict, if you would, the battle, the war begins at the cross. And so Satan sends out his biggest enemy, his biggest hero, if you would, of his army. And his, his hero is death. The ultimate fear of all human, the ultimate uh, force that we all have to face at some point is death. This thing that no one escapes. And so God sends out his champion, Jesus. And to Satan and to the world, it's the same picture. It's this, it's this giant, it's this force of, of, of great might and power in death. And yet he sends out, God sends out Jesus. And yet the weapon that Jesus brings with him is death itself. He comes out and he doesn't wield a sword. He doesn't call down lightning. He doesn't call down the legions of angels. He comes and he lays himself down and allows himself to be murdered. And to the entire world, this looks like defeat. It looks like the, the armies of darkness have succeeded. They have protected their territory. God is not going to win. But what no one saw was that this death of Christ, when he chose to give up his life, it looked to everyone else like this little stone being flung at a giant. What could that possibly do? But the weapon of God had such might and such wisdom that no one saw what was really taking place. And what's really taking place at the cross is victory. And we see this because three days later, what happens to be the sixth day on the calendar of the Jews, and that's important because the sixth day the number six stands for, you know, humanity, right? And if you guys have, have you heard that number 666, have you guys heard that before? The mark of the beast, right? Well, on the sixth day, Jesus rises again and does what? 
He redeems mankind. Do you see it? Oh, there's a lot to see, by the way. And so he does this thing, and it is, it is now the first blow. If you can imagine that this giant has now been defeated, and he's fallen down, and now the forces of evil realize we cannot win. It's only a matter of time. That is what the resurrection is. Amen? Now, for us to understand the resurrection, we have to begin to really kind of approach it. If you guys ever have your Bibles, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If you're taking notes, mark that one down. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him, <coughs> in fact, either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What that means is, it means that Christ is the first one to go. And now, it's a matter of like, uh, have you guys ever um, jumped on the train? You know what I'm talking about? Come on on the train, ride it, you know, come on. That's about all you're going to get out of me today, right? Okay, yeah, okay, you got it, right? Here's the idea, okay? Jesus plunges through first. He goes right through death and comes out on the other side alive. And now, for everyone in the chain, everyone holding hand in the chain, now it's our turn. We go through death, and we come out on the other end alive. Do you see it? And it goes on to talk about how death comes through the first man, through Adam. How, in the way that Adam rebelled against God, he, he, he broke relationship with the source of all life. And because, in essence, in essence, because he let go of the hand of God, now everyone in the train connected to Adam has now also let go of the hand of God. We have lost connection with the source of life. And because of this, something has entered this world that was never supposed to be here. Death. And again, this becomes this constant theme that we have to face as humans. Death is something that we all must face. But the idea is that this chain has now been restored. Where Adam let go, now Jesus takes the hand back to, to the Father. And now we're able to be pulled through death into life that never ends. Do you see it? All right, here we go. Now, the resurrection. We've got to understand something about this, okay? This, this, this is the single most important uh, idea and reality in our faith. If this is real, it changes everything. If this is not real, we've lost everything. Now, the implications of the, the empty tomb, we need to understand what this means. So, with the empty tomb, the effects of the resurrection ripple far and wide. If the Christ is risen, that means that we are free from Satan, sin, and death. While we also await a God of love and a world of peace, wholeness, and life without end. Here's what this means. It's like 
It's this idea that if Jesus can actually conquer death, if he can actually defeat the person and the thing and the force that we all are the most afraid of, this thing that we all must face, then it changes everything. Then the reality that we know has now been changed. It's now an alternate reality. The future that we all are going to have to taste and experience is now a different future. Everything is different if Jesus has been resurrected. If, if Jesus really is the one who's in control, if he can prove it by conquering death, then that means that everything that happens to us is up to him, not up to anybody else. Does that make sense? If Jesus is the strongest man, if you would, if he's the one who can conquer and beat anyone and everyone, that means he's the one who controls our future. If not, it's in the hands of someone or something else. So here we go. Here's the next thing. We have to understand the importance of of the empty tomb. What this means is, uh, C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said that Jesus is either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. What that means is Jesus is either exactly who he said he was. Either he is God and he is king over everything and he is going to conquer everything and he is actually Lord of all. Or he was lying to us, a liar. Or he's just bat crazy, a lunatic. Logical? He's either exactly what he says he is, he's either lying to all of us, or he's just crazy. Those are the only possible outcomes with the things and the statements that he made. And understand this, who Jesus is hinges on the resurrection. Understand that any human could die on the cross. Understand that before Jesus, countless thousands of people were crucified before Jesus, and hundreds were crucified after Jesus. He wasn't the only one to be crucified on a cross. But no one before him had ever defeated death, had ever died on the cross and then walked on the earth again. Are you seeing that? And if he can do that, if this is real, if he can actually do this, what does that mean for us? And so the entire Christian faith, you have to understand something about this. You have to understand that at the time that this was being shared, to Jews, it was scandalous. This idea that God would, would come in flesh and he would be a human and, and, and that, he would, that he would actually allow himself to die and that he would allow not just Jews but everyone into this new thing he was doing. This was outrageous to Jews. But to Greeks, to everyone else, it was just stupid. Understand something. The gospel should not make sense even today. It shouldn't make any sense to you. It only makes sense to you because most of us have, have all grown up in churches. That, oh, yeah, that's great. This God came down and he died. To anyone who hasn't grown up in church, this story is absolute crazy. So why do you have to die in the first place? And what's the point of all this? The entire Christian faith hinges on the resurrection. It holds all the weight. If he really did rise again, then everything else falls into place. If he didn't, then we have no hope whatsoever. Do you see it? He's either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic, right? So, as we understand what uh, the gospel is and what the, uh, the empty tomb means, it's important for us to now begin to approach, why do we want to be a part of this? Okay, so even if this is true, even if God is doing this thing, even if he did come in the form of Jesus and he died and all this kind of stuff and he rose again, why should I even care? What does it mean to me? And so in the scriptures, when Jesus came, he always had these little sayings he would say. 
And like the one thing you'd say a lot is that you'd say, he, he who has eyes to see and ears to hear, let him. Meaning, he who's willing, change what you see, receive what I'm saying, change your perspective, and hear what's actually being said. In counseling, one of the hardest things about counseling is the first step is you have to, someone has to be willing to allow their perspective to change. Whenever I was a youth pastor, I'd been a youth pastor for about three or four years, and for some reason, at that time, I always felt like when I saw myself in the mirror, I saw my high school self. Have you guys ever done this before? Looking good, right? Okay. And then there's one morning, well, night, where I'm in there brushing my teeth, and I just notice things are jiggling when I'm brushing my teeth that shouldn't be jiggling, right? Now, the truth is that, you know, all that extra whatever didn't pop up overnight. It had been there for a while. I just wasn't allowing myself to see it. And so the, then I ran the bedroom and I yelled at Nisa, you're a liar. <laughs> you tell me I look so good. Anyways, okay. Besides the point, your spouses, you know, I have to lie a little bit. It's okay. Um, what happens with the resurrection is that we don't care. It means nothing to us until we see clearly. And in counseling, it's we need someone to perceive reality. Reality is the way things actually are not the way that you perceive them to be. Make sense? To me, I perceive myself to, you know, be five years younger than I was. Reality was, I wasn't. <laughs> I have to be willing to see it. And so, we have to understand this. When it comes to the resurrection, resurrection has little value to someone who isn't dead or won't be. Desiring resurrection begins with seeing the need for life to spring up where there's death. In Jesus' words, the last shall be first. You know, when it comes to, to understanding the need for resurrection, people always see the need for it when they see death. And the one thing that we all have in common, every human, is that we must at some point in our life face death. Agreed? We're going to have to face death. But this is one of the ultimate realities. This, this is real for everyone here. This is real. This is reality. But this is also something that we use so much energy trying not to see. We wrap ourselves up in our jobs, in our hobbies, in our relationships, in everything in this world to try to avoid the fact that we're just wasting time until we have to hit this roadblock that none of us want to admit. Funerals are awful. Hospitals are awful. Because why? You can't hide. You see it everywhere. And the moment that you see death, the moment that, you're, that something shakes you and your perspective gets clear and you realize this is real, all of a sudden that need and that curiosity and that hunger, is there a way through it? Is there a way for me to not have to die? Is there a way for me to continue to live? And when you begin to taste that, all of a sudden, you begin to desire the resurrection. Do you see it? And so what Jesus used to say in his parables, he would say, at the end of it, he said, you know, the kingdom is coming, and God's going to do all this thing. And he would say, and in the kingdom of heaven, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And what this meant was, 
is that everyone who is last in this world, in this kingdom, everyone who is broke and poor and pitied and, you know, unsuccessful, whatever, the ones who, who are at the bottom of this society and in this world, they have nothing to lose. They are already experiencing and tasting death, and they are the first ones to see what God is doing in Jesus. They're the first one to know and to desire resurrection, a better life, something beyond this world. And then all the first in this world, everyone who's doing well and successful and respected and, you know, doing so well, we are insulated with our jobs and our money and our hobbies and our, and we are so consumed with this life that we are hiding from death and we don't see a need to give up this world to find life after this life. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So what happens with this is as we begin to have our perspective fixed, whenever we allow death to shake us, then it fixes our thinking. When we see clearly, we can begin to think clearly. Once we see death for what it is in us or the things around us or in those closest to us, the current state of things has no appeal and no cost is too high for true life to spring out of death. When you face death, when someone that you love faces death, there's nothing that you would not give up or do to find life in that moment. There's nothing that you wouldn't do to allow life to break into death in that person in that moment. And this is what Jesus meant when he talked about for anyone who would find this hidden treasure, anyone who would find this pearl of great price, they would go and sell everything they have just to grab a hold of life, life that will never end. And that, my friends, is found in the resurrection. Do you see it? So now the, the question shifts for us. Now that we understand the resurrection, now that, we, that, that we, we see it and we want it, the question becomes, how do we begin to take hold of it? How do we begin to live in, in this thing? And the first thing we have to do is we have to understand the first two symbols. Here's what they are. The good news, the gospel, what God's done in Jesus, is wrapped into one name, Jesus, and two symbols. The marriage of the cross and the tomb leads us to one understanding. Pause right there. We have these two symbols of the Christian faith. You've got the cross, which is a picture of, of this, this death and sacrifice and suffering. And then you have the empty tomb, a picture of freedom and life and victory, right? But there's something that, that is difficult for us. We have to live grabbing and holding to each of those. Here's why. When you begin to look at these two symbols, at the cross and the empty tomb, it leads us to one understanding. All roads to life pass through death. There is no resurrection without the crucifixion. There's no skipping the cross to get to the empty tomb. All roads to life lead through death. Do you see it? And what's hard for us is that we are so excited to get to resurrection, this idea that God's going to make everything right and everything whole, he's going to restore us, he's going to bless us, he's going to protect us, everything's going to be perfect on the other side, but we keep forgetting. In order for me to get to the place where God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, I have to be walked through the what? The valley, the shadow of death. In order for me to get to life on the other side, I've got to hold on to this hand that's going to pull me through death. Do you see it? If you were promised this morning that on the other side of that door, if you were to open that door, that you would never die. But the only catch is you can't take anything with you. 
house, friends, people, car, job, anything, pets, nothing goes through that door but you. But the promise is, when you go on the other side, you will never face death, pain, fear, or loss ever again. This is baptism, my friends. This is what you're doing when you get baptized. In Romans 6, we've been baptized into Christ's what? Life? Oh, skipping ahead. Been baptized into Christ's death. Woohoo! Amen, everybody. Cheer and shout. Okay, if you guys have your Bibles, go to Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus is my favorite. He just says things that make everyone crawl. I just love it. You know, like when he speaks and teaches, everyone goes, I just don't like this guy. This guy is terrible. Please get him away from me. His teaching should always mess with us a little bit. Always. But when you embrace them, they bring life like nothing else. Um, Here we go. Verse 24 in chapter 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Stop right there. That cross, right, is a picture of, of joy and love and life. No, the empty tomb is a picture of joy and love and life. The cross is a picture of Christ's death for us. In essence, on the cross, Jesus takes on himself all of our death and our hurt and our disappointments and our mistakes and our failures and our pain and our loss. He takes it into himself. But the only way for us to get to the other side where those things are now gone is for us to, in essence, crawl up on that cross with him. Hold his hand as he takes us through death. There is no getting to resurrection without going through crucifixion. Anyone who would fall off to me must deny himself, pick up the cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Do you see that? Whoever tries to take things with them through this door, whoever tries to hold on to this life and go into the other life is going to lose their life. There's no taking this life and this world with you through the door. This is death, my friends. Nothing goes through except for what Jesus pulls through. And the only thing he's promising to pull through is you. The only thing. He, ta- he teaches about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will last for- forever. But he never says your kingdom will last forever. He never says that your things and your control, your wishes and desires will last forever. He never says that. Whoever tries to save their life, whoever tries to cling to their control and to their life and their way will not be able to hold his hand through that torturous experience of letting everything go. But when you do, you come to the other side and experience what real life truly is. You see it? Everyone's like, I don't want to see it. <laughs> Please stop. So, so what happens with this is that at, once we begin to understand this reality, for us to embrace the empty tomb, the resurrection, the life, the victory over everything that holds us down and disappoints and, you know, all the imperfections of this life, we have to go through the cross. We have to understand this thing. For us to embrace the resurrection, we have to first embrace the cross. To flee the tomb... We must first run to the cross. In baptism, we see the life we pledge to live. We cut all ties, sign over all control, and lay down all other treasures as we pick up our cross. We willingly lose. We let go of this life. 
and we choose to accept the life that Jesus is promising us. If we do that, because remember, the pro- the, this is not contingent on your ability to carry the cross. This is contingent on your willingness to carry the cross. Does that make sense? You don't have to know how to let go of everything and trust God completely. You just have to be willing to try. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to trust you. In Romans 10, where it talks about anyone who would confess the lordship of Jesus. Again, that's death. Anyone who would confess that Jesus has full ownership to your life and believe in the resurrection, meaning that you're going to put your trust, you're going to live the rest of your life trusting the reality that Jesus can come through on every promise he's made to you. For you to begin to live in the resurrection, you've got to put all of your eggs in the one basket. After we embrace the cross, it's time to embrace the empty tomb. As scary as death is, some, some fear truly living even more. Embracing the empty tomb means living each second in every area of life with complete joy, passion, hope, purpose, and love. Living a life with nothing to lose but everything to be shared with others. It's a scary thing to not have any excuses anymore. Do you hear me this morning? Yes, death is scary. But waking up tomorrow with no excuses is scary too. And what happens is when you, allow you, when you put your trust in Jesus and you allow him to lead you through this life process of every day letting everything else go but him, it's scary because now it's time for you to live as a dead man. That's my alarm, sorry. <laughs> it's time to go home. Okay, anyway. It's a scary thing because, you know what, there's no one in here who's more carefree than a corpse. Did you hear me? No one in here is as cool. Okay. <laughs> when you're dead, you've got no worries, my friend. You're not connected to anything. You're not tied down to anything. You don't have to you know, carry any weights or burdens or responsibilities. You are dead. The Apostle Paul said that you are dead to the world and alive to who? Christ, meaning everything about your experience, your choices, your time on this earth is all about Jesus because you are dead to everything else. And so when you leave everything behind and you, and you wake up in this new world where Jesus is everything, then Jesus tells you, okay, now for the future, I'm everything, and because I'm everything, now everyone around you. He, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with what? Everything, and then love who? Your neighbor, everybody. So your life over here is all about you. All about your kingdom, the way you want things to be, about your happiness, about your safety and security and success. The problem is, if you want life after this life, if you want to overcome death and have what you were truly created for, you've got to let go of everything about you. And when you come through death, your life becomes all about Jesus. And because it's about Jesus, your life becomes all about everyone else but you. Do you see it? But in this, in this trust, that's what real faith is, my friends. It's walking it out. It's letting go of this life every day. In that is where the power of the resurrection comes through. When you've lost everything and you have nothing left to hold on to, you you, you have no security, that's when the power of God floods you and you are free from everything that held you down. And now you live not just for this world, but for everything that's coming and the life that will never end after this. Amen? Would you guys stand with me this morning as we close? Here it is, it's uh, Easter morning, and for everyone in here who considers themselves a follower of Jesus, uh, including myself, the first challenge is very simple. The Apostle Paul says that if Jesus has not truly risen from the dead, 
then all of us Christians, everyone who lives leaning on the cross, are to be more pitied than anyone else on the earth. So the question to you is this. Are you living so leaning and trusting on the resurrection of Jesus that if it's not real, your entire life has been a waste? Are you living in such a way to where you are all about building the kingdom of God? You're all about Jesus and loving and serving and helping others. Your life is so invested in the life after this one that if, he's, if this isn't real, your entire life was a waste. Is that really you? Or have you been spending your entire life building your kingdom, planning that this is all 